0: Well, good morning. That's uh, quite an introduction. Um, and, and they don't treat me like that at home. It's very, it's very, just as well, but it's very nice of you. If I'd known this was happening, I would have worn my kilt today, um, which I do have. But, uh, you know, I asked my father, 75, when I was married uh, in Philadelphia, I said, Dad, do you think I should wear a kilt for my wedding? He said, Son, with your legs. No, I just leave it alone. So... Um, <clears throat> Uh, doing myself and everybody else a favor. I was speaking with uh, George and Harry, the bagpipers uh, uh, in between the services, and I pointed out to them that the, the, the Irish sent the bagpipes to the Scots as a joke, and, uh, and the, Sc- the Scots never got the joke. And, uh, and so <laughs> we've, been, we've been playing them forever. Um, I had a wonderful time with your pastor yesterday, and uh, he and his wife, and others last night. And uh, so thank you for the privilege of being in this pulpit today. Uh, Acts chapter 4, I'd like to read from, beginning at verse 1. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I apologize, it's not the one you have in front of you. But um, it makes it easier for me. Um, Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Amen. Father, we pray that as we think about the truth of your word now, that the Spirit of God will be our teacher, that beyond the voice of a mere man Uh, You will conduct that divine dialogue whereby your Spirit is at work within us in a way that is sometimes unsettling but transforming as we turn to you in repentance and in faith. To this end, we seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was quite excited as I drove here this morning to realize that I was in the proximity of one of the great uh, uh, biotech companies in the world, uh, namely Amgen. Uh, hidden behind the trees. I'd love to go in there and see that place. I'm sure it's quite fascinating, but I'd probably have to sign the Official Secrets Act to do so. And um, it it made me think of uh, the fact that uh, our world is so uh, looking to um, not only the biotech industry, but to technology in every dimension in order to help us out. And if you saw the Wall Street Journal from the end of February... Uh, you may have rem- you may have seen that in the review section uh, they had this article: "Is Smart Making Us Dumb?" And uh, the question was: With all the development of smartphones, smart technology, smart everything, um, you know, are we becoming any smarter? But the thing that struck me was that uh, the 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 chief financial officer of Google, uh, a guy called uh, Patrick Pichette. Um, told an Australian news program, and I'm quoting from the newspaper now, that his company, that is Google, is, quotes, really an engineering company with all these computer scientists that see the world, and here's a phrase that struck me, as a completely broken place. Uh, In Singapore, a couple of weeks ago, he restated Google's notion that the world is, quotes, a broken place whose problems can be solved by technology. The future and game designer, Jane McGonigal, a favorite of the uh, TED crowd, also likes to talk about how, quotes, reality is broken, but can be fixed by making the real world more like a video game, with (laughs) points for doing good. From smart cars to smart glasses, smart is Silicon Valley's shorthand for transforming present-day social reality and the hapless souls who inhabit it. Pretty good, isn't it? And then, and then on the front, uh, they've got illustrations of this, all these inanimate objects. So, for example, the toaster uh, speaks to you. Toast? Really? Don't you think you should be laying off the carbs? <laughs> uh, your scales? That's ten pounds you've gained so far this year. I've made an appointment for you with a trainer. Uh, your your kitchen uh, garbage, I see you failed to separate plastics from metals. <laughs> Haven't we been over this before? That's <laughs> not all funny, because actually the technology is embedded in the lid of this. It's a, it's a it's a smartphone. It's an iPhone. It's the camera of an iPhone that is actually able to photograph what you're doing in your garbage can, and then send that back in through social media to whoever's in charge of it all, and then they'll be able to give you points uh, if you've done well, or come and sort you out if you haven't done so well. And uh, so, for example, it extends to the issue of water usage, the washing machine speaking. Your water usage is high. Could you go a couple of days between loads? So there's a sinister element to it as well. George Orwell uh, was a little ahead of the game. 1984, he could never have imagined anything like this. Why begin there? because I want this morning to take Peter's straightforward statement that we read in the 12th verse of chapter 4 concerning salvation. Salvation. The story of the Bible is the story of salvation. The story of the Bible is the story of how God has come in to a world that is broken, into a broken world in order to himself become broken, in order that as a result of his brokenness, men and women, May be fixed, may be restored, may be sorted out, may be saved. And the claim of Christianity that is here before us in this verse in Acts chapter 4 is that there is salvation in no one else except Jesus of Nazareth. That's what it says. There is salvation, says Peter, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, doesn't that just immediately set us back on our heels? Living as we do in a pluralistic culture, living in an environment where the notion is pervasive that all roads lead to heaven like they do to Timbuktu, that a good God, if there is a good God, will reward nice people as long as they try their best. And then you open your Bible and you discover, wait a minute, that doesn't fit with what we have from the lips of Jesus. That doesn't fit with what we discover the apostles saying after the resurrection of Jesus. And so it is a message to those of us who are exploring the question of Christianity. It is a message to those of us who are the proponents of Christianity, so that we might recognize what it is we have come to profess, and then to learn to profess it in a way that is both gracious and forthright, and kindly, and attractive, and meaningful, and ultimately, by God's grace, life-changing. Now, you have to go back to three o'clock on the previous afternoon uh, of this particular day that we read about in Acts chapter 4, which is recorded back in chapter 3, in order to understand the immediate context for this statement. I mean, Peter is not just launching off from nowhere, uh, sort of boldly, all of a sudden, standing up in the middle of the room and and in the middle of the street and shouting this out. No, there is a whole background to it, and I'm going to have to leave you to do this for your homework. Um, I will not be here to test you afterwards, but I can pass that on, uh, or you can write to me and and I'll I'll grade your paper and send it back to you. But (laughs) if you if you read chapter three, you will discover that what had happened was that a man who had been uh, uh, crippled, lame from his birth, who was routinely carried to this uh, strategic place in Solomon's Colonnade, which was part of the temple precincts. This guy, who spent his life asking people to give him money so that he might be able not only to support himself, but presumably his family too, um, he looks for money from these two characters, Peter and John. Peter and John say to him, uh, we don't have any money, but uh, what we've got we'll give to you. And uh, it's very interesting. Luke, he says, and and they directed their gaze towards him. And you can just imagine if you could paint, you would want to paint this in such a way that you would see just these three sets of eyes, two fastened on the one and one fastened on the two as best he can. And then his ears pinned back with this amazing statement, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What are you, crazy? What are you talking about? I've been lame from my birth. No, stand up and walk. And immediately his ankles were strengthened, and he stood up, and it says, and he began walking and leaping and praising God. I think the leaping is not so much uh, anything other than trying to figure out how to walk. (laughs) Because if you imagine, let's say the guy's in his mid-20s or his mid-30s, You you remember how difficult it was to teach your children how to walk? No, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. Oh, she's going over again. Whoop. Oh, there we go. So now we got this grown man, and he's all of a sudden all around the temple precincts. People are going, Who was that? Said, That's the guy, the the beggar guy. No, he's he's, he's, he's lame. No, he's not. No, what happened to him? Well, Peter and John told him to get up and walk. Yeah, well, I, I mean, how do you do that? Or <laughs> well, something to do with Jesus. I don't know. They're, they said in the name of Jesus or something. Jesus. Jesus is dead. We kn- they, they buried him. He was crucified in between the two thieves, for goodness sake. What are, you, what are you on about? You're not listening to these clowns that are going around saying he's alive, are you? They stole him. They hid him. Where did They said, nah. Well, hey, you might want to talk to the man yourself he's going around here like a kangaroo all the way through the place. You see, one of, the, one of the things that is really disarming to the skeptic is when you actually meet somebody that you know was totally one way, and now he's totally the other way. So you've got to say, either this man has been involved—he's read every self-help book in the world, and he's managed to process it— Or a a strange and alien power has invaded his life or her life and has turned him upside down and made him a brand new person. Well, that's the claim of Christianity, and that's the message that we're called upon to proclaim. By the name of Jesus Christ, this man, the one you crucified, but God raised from the dead, it's by this man, Jesus, that he is standing before you, healed and well. So, in other words, he's not suggesting to the people uh, just sort of vague propositions He's not offering to them a sort of uh, version, a first-century version of New Age spirituality. Is there something you would like to believe about God? Uh, Why don't you just uh, look into yourself and see if you can find him? No, nothing like that at all. Just very straightforward. This fellow was a blind beggar. He's jumping all around here, and the reason he is is because Jesus is alive, and Jesus has given to us the power to enable this man to do what he's doing. People say, this is absolute nonsense. And because people say it's absolute nonsense, the danger is that the church capitulates to that. So the church throughout history has run the risk of saying, well, look, if we're going to hold to these very straightforward statements, people are going to think we're nuts. So why don't we get rid of the difficult parts? Let's get rid of the hard parts. Let's, get rid of, well, let's, let's dump the resurrection for a start. Let's say that the resurrection was not a physical reality, but he was just resurrected in the minds of his followers. Okay, that, that'll make people feel better. No, it makes the average businessman go, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection, I don't believe in it either. Let me out of here. I should have been golfing this morning. I wish I didn't come. The fact of the matter is that when you remove the hard parts from Christianity, you're not left with anything. There's there's no Christianity left, because Christianity is all the hard parts. It's all the difficult parts. It's the fact that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, because he's the only one who is qualified to save. And when the church—big C— when the church goes soft on the truth and the power and the relevance of the gospel, it ends up with nothing to say to the community. And this morning, as we're here in the Kanao Valley, in the vastness of a, of a city that is, you know, a series of suburbs in search of themselves, in this world, surrounded by all of our friends, if you love this Jesus— You and I together have the opportunity, in an unequivocal way, to make this same declaration, to do so kindly, boldly, and succinctly. There is salvation in no one else, for there isn't another name. Now, here we are in the end of the first decade, into the second decade of the millennium, and nothing is new. 1952, when James S. Stewart preached uh, to the faculty and um, divinity students in Yale, he warned them on that occasion. That's 60 years ago now. He warned the students who were going to go out and take pulpits across America. He warned them about a, quote, theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating Christianity, which he said was less than useless, theologically vague, and harmlessly accommodating. He was looking over the the, the the ramparts. And he was seeing into the future and he was realizing that subsequent generations would not be fighting a battle with scientific rationalism. They would be fighting a battle with pluralism. They would be fighting the battle that says, but we know you're wrong because you can't be right. So the only people we're afraid of are the people who are going to say, This is right. And ipso facto, that must then be wrong. If two and two is four, two and two isn't five, nor is two and two three and a quarter. It is what it is. And when we deal in the hard facts of Christianity, we realize that we are dealing with propositional truth. We are dealing not with vague generalities. We're not dealing with a philosophy to be adopted. We're not dealing with a program for people to to, uh, join, but we're dealing with a declaration of a person. And we're actually saying to people that Jesus Christ is not simply a figure in history to be revered, but Jesus Christ is a living reality. That he is—he has triumphed over sin, he's triumphed over Satan, he's triumphed over hell, and he is alive to transform lives. That is at the very heart of the gospel. Now, here we are as a church—not just a church with a little C, local church—but the church in general. What are we going to do at this point in history to avoid simply disintegrating, collapsing, losing our edge in the world, just being swallowed up by a mass of religious relativism? Now, You do your own research because you are sensible people, but it is quite staggering, my friends, to interview the students In Christian colleges and universities, the the professing Christian kids, and ask them their views on the Bible. Do you believe that in the Bible we have a sufficient and inerrant word from God? You will not get anywhere close to 100% affirmation. If you ask them, do you think it is possible that other religions may take people safely to God, you will get multivarious answers the significant collapse within, is arguably greater than the supposed threat from without. We have met the enemy, and it is us. We are not actually threatened by the surrounding culture. We are not. It may get bad, bad, bad for America and simultaneously good, good, good for the church because suddenly it draws the lines in a way that says there is a real and radical distinction between the affirmations of apostolic Christianity and the vague notions that are embraced by large segments of the professing church as well as those who are on the periphery. So, let me suggest to you three words to help us on our way. What are we to do as a church? First of all, we need to acknowledge our sins and be about the business of confession, of confession. You say, confession? I thought you start off, you confess your sins. Once you confess your sins, you move on from there, you're done. No, don't be silly. You say, like you had one shower in your life, and then that— <laughs> And, I, and after that, he's you, you like, "Some kids may they think that's a great idea, but no, no, no." Martin Luther, Martin Luther said that the Christian life is a life of daily repentance, because we realize again and again that we that we do sin. It, those of us who are in free churches, such as this is and mine is, we're soft on confession. We can learn from. Uh, the more traditional churches, how to confess our sins. To begin the Lord's Day morning by saying, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our hearts. There's no strength in us. The good that we ought to do, we have failed to do, and the bad that we ought not to do, we've gone ahead and done. And we want to ask you to spare us, Lord, because we are miserable offenders. We want to confess to you that we have not loved people the way, Lord Jesus, you love people. We have to confess to you that we've hidden behind our proud, boastful affirmations about who we are and what we are and how we do what we do. We have to confess to you that we sound smug, we sound self-satisfied, we sound triumphalistic, and frankly, we sound mean. And the reason that so many youngsters under the age of 20 have a decreased interest in what we have to say is not because they are challenging rationally the truth that we are seeking to convey, but it is because they are turned off majorly by the way in which We are seeking to convey that truth. We face a real crisis in this country of perception. Perception. It's not, my dad used to tell me, Alistair, it's not what you say that's the problem, son. It's the way you say it. We have to ask is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? If something that's true in a moment is not necessarily suggest- uh, a, leg- a legitimization of the opportunity to say it. I mean, my hair may look like the Dickens in the morning, and I'm going to do a funeral, but my wife doesn't need to say, your hair looks like the Dickens. How can you do a funeral like that? It's true, but it isn't going to help me. And in the same way, it would be true to sit down by a woman in a Starbucks and say, Hey, I know you. You've been in this community for a while. Haven't you had five husbands, and don't you have a live-in lover? That'd be true, wouldn't it? We're pretty good at that kind of stuff. Uh, Jesus was, Ching, you could get me a coffee. I'm just contextualizing you, got it. It's the woman at the well, right? He gets there beautifully, graciously, kindly. Not an ugly element in it. Uncovering uncovering her condition with a simple suggestion. Why don't you go call your husband? We'll talk about it some more. And she said, "I, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, good, now we can really talk because now we're at the issue. He didn't talk to her about divorce, he didn't talk to her about her circumstance, he didn't ask if she'd aborted any babies. He didn't stand with a big sign outside. Now he got to confess that there is a significant problem of smugness in the way we come across. It's not attractive. It's ugly. It's not remotely like Jesus. And our triumphalism, when you add that in hey, come with us, everything's fabulous over here. That's neither true to the Bible nor is it true to human experience. Everything's not fabulous. Some of us have kids that don't believe, some of our kids are doing drugs, some of us have a spouse that's driving us, frankly, insane, and we're hanging on by a thread. Some of us are dealing with people in a wheelchair, and it will never change for all of life. It's not all fabulous. Jesus transforms our circumstances, but he doesn't send us out into the streets with an inane grin on our face to tell a story that isn't true. We've got to tell the truth, and it is a truth that will set free. Confession. Confession. To confess our idolatry, the way we make— heroes. You know, as Paul Simon says, every generation throws a hero up the pop charts. And the same is true. I've lived here for 30 years. Every generation shows there's another Christian hero. You know, there's another great guy, whoever he is. You know, and we, we adulate, we, we, we create false gods. And idolatry always and inevitably leads to immorality. And in three decades here in America, every collapse at the pastoral level every collapse at the pastoral level, every single collapse at the pastoral level may be traced to one thing, pride. Pride. That's where it always starts. Confession. You're quiet, and you should be. Secondly, conviction. If we're going to take this message out, first we start on our knees— Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Now I'm getting on my feet today, Lord, and I'm going out, and I want to be able to speak with conviction uh, concerning these things. Well, what does that mean? It means that I'm going to have to do the job of reading my Bible. I'm going to have to learn my Bible. I'm going to have to start thinking. I'm going to have to start reading the New York Times or the LA Times uh, with one foot in the LA Times and the other foot in my Bible. I'm going to start— turning off a tremendous amount of the news, which is not news at all, but it's just a bunch of total titillation. People are not involved in meaningful dialogue. They're just watching programs to reinforce their prejudices. And it's no help to you at all. You sound like the village idiot when you start regurgitating Hannity or Bill Riley or anybody else. You're just out there giving it the same stuff. I hear I can go across the entire country. I know, I know what program the people are, are watching. These, these people are, are, are the funnels of information. And it, it, that's fine. Even the stuff I agree with, I don't want to hear about anymore. Because I've got to think. I've got to think. I, I, I've got to turn this off and think for a moment. I'm going to, I want to read. I want to think. So that I may then form conviction out of thinking. I might be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I don't want the world around me to squeeze me into its own mold. I don't care whether it's a conservative world or a liberal world. I am of a different world, right? You're of a different world. We have a different king. We got raised to the heavenly places. We're not down here in this morass— Right? People say, what are you talking about? You go into your work tomorrow and say, hey, thank goodness I'm raised to the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The guy's going to say, hey, we've got a psychiatrist over here in building three. You go over there and talk to them. What are you talking about? They've got no idea about that, but it's a reality. The thing that distinguishes you is the fact that you're united with Christ. You have been united with Christ. It is out of your union with Christ that everything else flows. And so, from that conviction, in the way that Timothy had to be convinced in his day, we need to be convinced in our own day. Convinced about the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to yourself all day, every day. Christians need the gospel. We need the gospel. Because if you don't have the gospel and you don't preach the gospel to yourself, you're going to have to find some other way of dealing with the fact that you're a miserable sinner. And when you're confronted by your miserable sin, then if you don't have the gospel, then you're going to have to say, well, I'm on a kind of about minus seven at the moment over here. It's like I took, you know, I took a triple bogey on the fourth, but if I can get a couple of pars and maybe a birdie, then I can get it, I get back in in position. I maybe read two chapters of the Bible. I haven't read it in a month and a half. If I get two chapters of the Bible, maybe that evening service he was on about with Jeremy, that's probably a 10 pointer right there. And I can, I can, I'll get this, I'll get these wings stable here one way or another. That's what you're going to end up doing. You'll become a legalist or a loony, one of the two, unless you understand the gospel. Because when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, what are you going to do? You're either going to be a liar and say, oh, no, I'm not. Or you're going to face up to it. And then what do you do? And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Now, it's the gospel. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel, you see. The gospel is that Jesus has come into our brokenness and been broken in order that we might be put together properly. Our friends and neighbors don't understand that. They think that what we're on about is largely, if you do certain things, God will accept you. We have to go to them and say, no, the Christian message is not that. The Christian message is that in Jesus, God accepts you, therefore go out and do certain things. The faith that saves, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, as well. So, can I just say to you that, and I know this is a relatively political environment here, our message is not the political agenda of the right. Our message is not the ecological agenda of the left. Our message is the message of the gospel. Are there political, social implications that flow from that message? Absolutely. Will we affirm them? Unequivocally. But we do not lead with them. Peter is not standing up here in Jerusalem, taking on the social ills of the day. Paul in Ephesus is not taking on the issue of homosexuality and making it his driving calling card. He understands what's going on in Ephesus. He's been in those baths, He knows who these people are. What is he saying? He's saying to the believers, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. We have the divine power to pull down the strongholds, but we don't pull down the strongholds by simply going out and trying to fight them at their own game. The implications of the gospel are the implications. They are not the gospel. And the danger that we face right now, especially those of us who are conservative in our political views, is that we have actually intruded upon the story of the gospel uh, by leading with an agenda, that is actually opposed by people who may be even willing to consider the gospel. But because we've wrapped the gospel up in a certain package, and we're very convinced and convicted about that, we've actually lost the chance to speak about this Jesus. And I don't care whether you wrap it up left side or right side. Well, you say, but if you're going to go out and say Jesus is the only Savior, then people are going to charge you with intolerance. Yes, of course they are. And we have to affirm the fact that we believe in tolerance, not across the board and in every way. Those of you who are engineers understand the nature of the word tolerance. Tolerance tolerance was, was actually an engineering term, wasn't it? About tension and all that kind of jazz. Tolerance has now become... The notion that every view, no matter what it is, is equally valid. That's not tolerance. That's actually stupidity. (laughs) But we affirm tolerance, legal tolerance, because we live in this, the home of the free and the brave and the brave and the free. This is our place. We love it here. This is a Western democracy. Therefore, we profess and we propagate our views in a world that secures the same legal freedom— to those who oppose us, to profess their views as well. That's legal tolerance. We also affirm social tolerance so that we teach our children not to be disrespectful of those who've come from a different place or who dress in a certain way or who are uh, just, just different from us. That's social tolerance. Christians uphold that. But the intellectual tolerance that tolerates every opinion as if it was equally valid without being able to detect anything in it that is wrong is not actually a virtue. It's a vice of the feeble-minded. And it doesn't work in air traffic control. It doesn't work in cardiothoracic surgery. It doesn't work in, in civil engineering. I mean, it doesn't, does it? You folks live in the real world. You're, you're sensible. You're not like me with a strange job. You, you have proper jobs. You, you meet real people, you know. You get to go places, you get to go to work tomorrow. I get to go to work tomorrow. But it's not like you get to go to work. I'm jealous of the fact that you get to go to work. I don't know if I'd be as good as you are. I don't know if I, it's easy, I can encourage you in this way. But you, you live in that factory. You go in that office. You're going to be at the water thing tomorrow. And the, and the coffee, you're going to try and take Sunday into Monday. That is, that is a huge transition, isn't it? Especially in a, in a world that is, it is just saying like, well, that's very interesting for you. Yeah, I'm pleased for you. I don't. F- I find the hardest people to deal with are the ones who are very affirming, the ones who challenge me. I can get at it a little better, but the ones who go, "Yeah, I agree with that," and then I have to go, "No, you don't." They say, "Oh, well, yes, I do." Well, you no, you don't, because if you did, and then you're also, "Oh, this is a wreck. This is a train wreck here." <laughs> Peter's statement: Salvation and no one else was not a statement—it's not a matter of pride or humility. It's actually a logical deduction from the facts. Because remember, Peter was convinced the whole thing had come to a cla- uh, just a, a, a careening halt in a Palestinian grave. He was done. Good Friday, it was over. I mean, they weren't in Good Friday going, hey, only a couple of days, and it'll be Easter. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you know, let's have a coffee. It'll be Easter soon. Jesus is coming back. No, they were done. Finished. Let's get out of here. We might get crucified next. The only, the only brave souls left are the women. <laughs> Let's just be honest, guys. That's the way it's been, and that's the way it is. Yes. <laughs> Quiet from the feminist on the second front row. It's <laughs> just, just a joke. Um, at Easter Sunday, they're bewildered. All right? Demoralized on Friday, bewildered on Sunday— and now out on the streets of Jerusalem going, I'll tell you why this guy's leaping around here like a kangaroo. And that's because Jesus is alive from the dead and, uh, and he sent the Holy Spirit who filled us and I finally figured it out here. And that's why I'm giving you this history lesson and telling you that the words of the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, there isn't any salvation in anyone else. Jesus is the only savior because Jesus is the only one who is qualified to save. That's why he's the savior. Do you know somebody else who triumphed over death? Do you know someone else who died and came back? Do you know somebody else who lived a perfectly sinless life and died in the place of sinners? Do you know anybody else who made such claims and was able to verify them? Do you know anyone who stilled the waters and calmed the sea? Do you know anyone who healed the lepers and and released the demoniacs? There is nobody standing forward to say it. Buddha couldn't say it. Confucius couldn't say it. Islam has nothing to say except terror and mayhem and scales. Hinduism— eat the fruits of your sinfulness, suck it up. You might come back as a monkey and you may come back as whatever else it might be, but you're stuck with it. There's nothing there. So what what does the Hindu say to the brokenness of our world? We live in a broken world. Get yourself a toaster that can talk to you. That'll fix you. Read a good book. You'll feel much better. Sit cross-legged and gaze at the Pacific Ocean. Look inside yourself. Find God. All of these things— and Christianity says, i got one for you. I mean, you're not going to like this, maybe, but I've got to tell you. God, the creator of the universe, invaded time and space in the person of Jesus, came right into human life, lived life the way it should be lived, kept the law in its perfection, died not as an example or as a martyr, but as a substitute in the place of sinners— The gospel is the story of the appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. That by nature we are alienated from God on two counts. We alienated from him on account of our sin and our rebellion. He alienated from us on account of his wrath. His wrath is not a fiery outburst like a dad losing his temper in the car. His wrath is his settled indignation, his, his inevitable revulsion for everything that is anti-him. It is, it's hard to approximate, isn't it? But, but the, the, the hatred that he has is the hatred of a good cancer surgeon who says to you as he gets ready... To put you under, as my doctor did for me, a Jewish man. Actually, the first thing he said to me was, Alistair, would you like to pray? So I prayed for my own surgeon before he went in to address the cancer. But I don't want him in there just fiddling around. I want him hating it. I want him hating everything that is done to me and about to do to me. I want him to deal with it radically and unequivocally. That's how God deals with sin. That's why the cross, the atonement, is not a mathematical formula. It's a flesh and blood reality. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. That's what we're saying to people. And that's the great news. Not a program to get in, not a bunch of rules and regulations to adopt, to try and you know, fix yourself. But it's just a big new start. Have you had that big new start, you know? You say, well, I don't know. Well, if I asked you if you were married, could you answer that? If you answer, I don't know, I'm telling you, you ain't married. <laughs> there comes a time where you got to do the I Do. Or are they I don't. And the same with the message of Jesus. It's got to come a place where you go, okay, I'm in. I do. I do. How do you feel? I don't know. How'd you feel when you got married? Scared, spitless. I didn't feel anything. I was like, whoa. The guy never asked me. So how'd you feel about Susan? No, he said, Will you, will you, will you, will you, will you? Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you? In other words, it was a response of my will. For better, for worse. So some days when it's worse. Why am I still there? Why don't I just slip out the backjack, make a new plan stand? No need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Why don't I just go? Because there's 50 ways to leave your lover. There's no, there's no reason not to. The only reason I stay is because I said I would. Because I said I would. That love is not the victim of my emotions. It's the servant of my will. And the same is true in becoming a Christian. Some guys have never come to Christ because they're waiting for the thing to pick them up and grab them, you know. Like they're waiting for the ultimate wave. It's not coming, man. It's here. It's proposition to you. Jesus is a savior. You're a sinner. Thank him for saving you. Let's get going. Last word is the word compassion. supposed to stop right now. Compassion. Confession, conviction, Compassion. Oh, we do want to have compassion, don't we? We don't want want Lennon and McCartney having to teach teach us how to do it. Huh? Look at all those lonely people. Where do they all come from? Huh? Father McKenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one come here, no one came near, darning his socks in the night. Look at all these lonely people. That's what Jesus said. He said to his guys, hey guys, because they they didn't get it. They were were a bad bunch. I, I... Let's just be honest. The disciples were, were not good. They were not a good group. They were the group, but they were not that good. Right? Hey, can you get the kids out of here, please? We're doing evangelism. Get the kids. Sorry, what was that, Jesus? Yeah, bring up the children, of course. Yeah. Get Jesus, yeah, he loves children. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Hey, Jesus, we were, we were over there in Samaria. We, we, there was a guy casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop. <laughs> what? See, I told you not to tell him to stop. <laughs> How was your evangelism trip? Jesus asked them. No, not so good. they a very poor response. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and torch their houses? <laughs> he must have been going, man, a life. What a group. But a group, did they need the Holy Spirit? You bet your life they did. They couldn't understand up from down. Here we go. Come on. Here we go. Jesus says, look at these people. They come back, the woman in the well. Hey, what's up? We went for the sandwiches. We're back with the sandwiches. Now you're talking to a woman of all things. Goodness gracious. What is this? Far- she said, it looks like she's a Samaritan as well. Why would you be talking to a Samaritan? And a woman. In the middle of the day, we went for the sandwiches. Now you say, I've got food to eat, you know not all. What the heck's that about? That's ridiculous. Why did we even go away for that stuff? <laughs> Jesus says, she's one of the lost sheep of Israel. I love this woman. She's totally messed up. If, if I don't give her living water, nobody can. Because nobody else has the living water. That's why we say what we say, not because we're arrogant. It comes across, and I'll finish with C.S. Lewis. If in doubt, finish with C.S. Lewis. (laughs) In the silver chair, remember how it ends? Jill's coming up. She wants a drink of water. She's moving. She hears the water. She's just desperate, thirsty. The trouble is, Aslan's there. The lion is there, and the lion seems to be blocking the way to the water, and the dialogue goes something like this. If you're thirsty, you may drink, The voice was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. Jill was frightened, but in a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat, girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. The lion didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. There's a sermon right there. This is the trouble. You see, we say it as if we're boasting, as if we're apologetic, as if we're angry. He didn't say it as if he was boasting, sorry or angry He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step closer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Are you going to go look for another stream? You see, everything that—all that Christ has done for you is of no value to you so long as you remain outside of Christ. It's no more of value to you than the restaurant in, in which you're now going to eat. You've gone there so many times, you know the menu off by heart. The fact that you know the menu off by heart does not mean a thing until you order off the menu and actually eat it. You can have this all buttoned down without ever having come to drink of Christ, the living water. There is salvation in no one else, for there isn't any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So first, we need to turn to him in repentance and faith, and then we need to ask that in the power of the Holy Spirit we may be able to go out confessing our sins, convinced of its truthfulness, and compassionate in the way we convey the message. Father, hear our prayers and the cries of our hearts. Accomplish your purposes, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.